episode 181, Addiction is a Chronic Illness. Today, I speak with Lippy Roy, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Drug overdoses kill nearly 64,000 people a year, and the nation's life expectancy has fallen two years in a row. If it is your mission and purpose to improve patient outcomes, considering addiction is paramount these days. Today, I speak with Lippy Roy, MD, who is the medical director of the Kingsborough Addiction Treatment Center in Brooklyn, New York, and also the former chief of addiction medicine at New York's Rikers Island Correctional Facility. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Lippy Roy, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the things that you said in an article that you wrote was substance abuse and mental illness pair up like magnets to metal. So let's address the addiction or substance use and the mental illness. The two illness categories do go hand in hand. That does not mean that everybody who experiences addiction also has mental illness or the other way around. However, you might have heard the expression co-occurring disorders or dual diagnosis. That means somebody is diagnosed with a substance use disorder and mental illness like depression, anxiety, PTSD, schizophrenia. So the two can occur in the same patient. And when that happens, it's important to treat them both, to make sure both are being managed. So that means making sure a patient is seeing a therapist, a counselor, a psychiatrist, and getting medications for their mental illness. So it's important to address both. Got it. And it is definitely the case that those with substance abuse are frequent utilizers of the healthcare system, you know, perhaps the ER. You had mentioned that there is an evidence-based approach to caring for those patients. What does that look like? I'm really glad you brought up the hospital settings. So emergency departments actually play a really critical role in the entire opioid epidemic and addiction in general. They often are the first line providers in healthcare facility when it comes to patients coming in for their addiction. And more broadly speaking, hospitals in general. So just a little bit of data. Patients with substance use disorder have very high rates of hospitalization and readmissions. They also have long lengths of stay, and all of this adds up to skyrocketing healthcare costs. You asked about evidence-based approaches. So when it comes to, let's talk about opioid use disorder or opioid addiction, the data is very clear in terms of how to treat people with opioid addiction. We have three FDA-approved medications that, that have been shown to save lives, and We also have counseling or behavioral therapies. The two together, the the medications and counseling, the people who have the best outcomes receive both medications and counseling or therapy. Now, that does not mean that every single person has to receive both, but that's why it's important to tailor the therapy to that individual patient. I was reading several weeks ago, Time Magazine, the entire magazine was dedicated to a photo essay of the opioid epidemic in this country. These photos that just really brought home 
the depth and breadth of this crisis that we have. And one of the things that became pretty clear is through the pictures, many of the individuals that were addicted were not your stereotypical. Like if you just saw them walking down the street, you wouldn't say there goes an addict. However, these people were very addicted and maybe not have even admitted to themselves that they were in this place. So if someone keeps showing up in the ER. I could see that it's a very difficult challenge if the person doesn't want to be counseled or maybe they don't even admit it because they're not really at that point. Or is this kind of a long game? You touched on a a patient's or a person's readiness to change. So you're right in that not everyone is always ready to to want to quit or to uh, change their, their drug use. So it's important to meet people where they're at. That's where the concept of harm reduction really comes in. So that's part of it. But the other part is it's really important to recognize that addiction really is a chronic medical disease. We we as a community need to start appreciating the fact that we need to treat people with addiction the same way that we treat People with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, high blood pressure, diabetes. These are all chronic medical diseases. Bear in mind that of the 23 million Americans with substance use disorder, only 10% access treatment. Now, if you told me that only 10% of my diabetic patients were getting treatment, that means the other 90% that have diabetes are suffering from kidney failure, blindness, heart failure, and probably dying of strokes and heart attacks. And by the way, I'd probably lose my medical license. But in addiction, the 10% that are getting treatment, ah, we seem to be okay with that. And that's unacceptable. The other point that I want to make is, you know, you said you can't really tell who looks like they're a quote addict. And you're absolutely right. Um, When I took care of homeless patients in Boston, many of my patients had law degrees, they had PhDs, they had very successful lives, they were educated. But what I came to realize is that they reached this certain predicament in their life out of a series of misfortunes combined with some bad decision making. You know, with addiction, it's really the same thing. It's these root causes of pain and suffering. Nobody starts injecting them their veins with heroin because they're bored or stupid or lazy. It's because they're self-medicating from the the pain that and trauma that's in their life. You had written an article about Tom Petty and his unfortunate early death. He was basically taking these pain medications because he wanted to do a concert tour and he was in terrible pain. So, you know, you get a guy like that who is self-medicating, you know, he's using these powerful narcotics in order to live his life. I'm sure that's one reason that hinders people perhaps from getting the care. But what else? Like, are there sort of societal norms or medical norms which prevent people from getting the care that they need? So there's a lot of different things we as a society really need to do. And the one thing is just recognizing that addiction is a disease. It is not a sign of moral weakness or failure. Right now, we don't recognize that. And we're you know, we in the, at least the addiction community are really trying to change that. Along with that, the reason why only 10% are getting treatment 
A, it's just lack of education, understanding of what addiction is. And B, it's really profound stigma. You know, we still judge people with addiction. We say that it's their fault. They need to get control. They need to, to yeah, take control of their lives. And we also just use all these judgmental, highly stigmatizing language and, and, and vocabulary. Studies have shown that when we use language like substance abuser, drug abuse, addict, cokehead, junkie, lush. Even doctors and nurses say phrases like, oh, your urine is dirty. You know, we don't you say that with my, my patients with diabetes who have, a, say, a blood sugar of 600. I don't say, oh, Mr. Smith, your urine is dirty with sugar or you're abusing donuts. You know, we just don't say that, right? But studies show that when we use stigmatizing language like abuser or addict or junkie, patients perceive more discrimination, and they are less likely to seek care. In addition, healthcare professionals, when they use language or hear language like this, they spend less time in clinic with patients. They also label patients with addiction as being less motivated, manipulative, angry, violent. And all of that adds up to suboptimal care. So I think we really need to address stigma and just really educate doctors and nurses. So not just the healthcare profession, but also law enforcement and policymakers and judges and teachers. It just has to be a widespread education. What is the end game? I know that sounds like kind of a weird question, but is the object to get the patients completely off the medications entirely or to help them in a different way? That's a really good question. And my simple answer, because you're asking a doctor uh, what the end game is. And so my responsibility, my professional duty is, well, first it's primum non nocere, which basically is Latin for first do no harm. And then the second objective is really to improve the quality of life for my patients. Obviously, ultimately, I want to save lives. But in so doing, I also want to improve the quality of life. Now, remember, everything that I'm telling you now, Stacey, this has all been on the job training. I went to good medical schools and residency programs, but I didn't learn any of this during my training. I learned very little about pain management and even far less about addiction. So everything that I'm telling you now has really been on the job training, just a lot more specialized education and training. And so this concept of harm reduction, again, I used to think, because I was trained this way, I was always told that if somebody's coming in and they're an alcoholic, again, I try not to use that term because that's stigmatizing, but somebody who's struggling with alcohol or opiates, the goal is abstinence. That's always the goal and the only goal. However, I've come to learn that that's not really effective and it's not respectful for the patient or the person who's using the substance. So now my approach is consistent with the harm reduction approach, which is to understand and respect the decisions of the person using the drug. So a person just may not be ready to change their drug use. And it's important to have what I call kind of motivational interviewing types of questions. Ask them, you know, what do you enjoy about alcohol? What do you enjoy about heroin? And then I like to ask patients, describe to me how life might be different if alcohol wasn't part of it, if cocaine wasn't part of it. So those two statements or questions are very different than something like, 
oh, well, you know, cigarettes are going to kill you. You know, alcohol is going to give you liver disease and it's going and you're going to die. I mean, the latter is a lot, <laughs> it, the, the latter is a lot more judgmental, right? Mm-hmm. What do payers have to do with this? It, you know, what do payers need to know? Because obviously at the end of the day, it's going to be an executive at an insurance company, be it public or private or an employer, actually, these days, who may be making financial decisions, whether to cover certain things or not cover certain things. Do you have any advice for them or key takeaways that they really should be aware of? My take-home message for insurance companies would be really this. Once insurance companies recognize and accept that addiction is a chronic medical disease, it should be treated the same way as a person's diabetes, high blood pressure, kidney disease, lupus, any other chronic medical disease. Because once we do that, once we recognize that addiction is a chronic medical disease that can be treated And by the way, people fail to realize that most people with addiction, once connected to the appropriate treatment and recovery services, get better. And take it from someone like me who has actually seen this. I have seen this time and time again, countless number of patients. I'm talking about people who were heavy, heavy drinkers, heavy heroin or cocaine users. Once they got into treatment, their life completely changed for the better. They were able to have a relationship with their children. They were able to finish their diploma. They were able to go back to work. Their life had a sense of purpose. And as doctors who've been doing this work, doctors, counselors, nurses, whoever, people have been doing addiction work, it's just really uh, fulfilling. It's rewarding to see that. And that's why I went into medicine. It's really to to take care of people who are struggling, who are sick. So once insurance companies realize that they are treating people, they're taking care of a medical disease, it's going to be fulfilling. That's the, I think that's what the responsibility should be. What strikes me when you say that is if people are getting better, and you obviously would be one to know, then as a someone that deals with economists, healthcare economists every day, you know, one of the things that you want to look at is the medical cost offset. What is the cost of leaving this untreated versus the cost of the treatment? And if people can be healed or cured of this chronic ailment, then it would seem to me to be a good investment over the long haul. It's an excellent investment, actually. And if you think about it, you had asked me about hospitals. And, and uh, in our previous conversations, you asked about, you know, why, would a, why should a hospital executive or CEO care? Well, as somebody who's worked at multiple hospitals and trained at multiple hospitals, I can tell you firsthand hospitals are already taking care of people with addiction. They're just not necessarily addressing the actual addiction, but they're constantly admitting people with different clinical indications. They're either admitting them for heart failure or for lupus or diabetes or or a liver disease, you name it, cancer. I guarantee you a good percentage of these patients have some type of underlying addiction or the patients are being admitted for their addiction, like alcohol intoxication, whatnot. Bear that in mind when you think of a hospital's mission statement. Every single hospital I've ever worked for, worked at, including my current hospitals, I'm affiliated with NYU, the mission statement is usually something to the effect of, you know, providing high quality patient care and ensuring patient safety. So if that's the mission, then it's 
consistent with taking care of patients with addiction and directly addressing their addiction. If not, then you're simply not fulfilling your mission statement. Well, speaking of that mission statement, that brings me to another question. In the cases of patients who are addicted to opioids, especially many of those featured in that Time magazine issue that I, I just read, which is, is really gripping. If anyone hasn't seen it, I would highly recommend picking it up. Many of the individuals which were profiled there didn't start out on the street, you know, using heroin. It's They were prescribed an opioid for something or other, and then they just never stopped taking it. So if a hospital or a health system or a provider of any ilk is looking to provide high quality care, and ensuring patient safety, what do they need to do on the prescribing side before the person is an addict? Is there any best practices there in order to minimize the chances that someone's going to go down a bad path? So the way I break it down is there's the, the pain management side of it. And then there's what exactly should the patient get once they're in the hospital? So as I said before, I never, I, I got very little training on, on pain management when I was undergoing medical school and residency. What we're trying to do now is really educate young trainees, young doctors, and the physicians that are out in the community about, you know, how to really address pain. Unfortunately, back in the mid-90s when Purdue Pharma first created OxyContin and they funded the American Pain Society, and which came up with a pain as the fifth vital sign, you know, they also funded the Joint Commission, which trains people like me, doctors like me. They also told doctors that, quote, opiates aren't addictive. And they said that treating chronic pain long-term with opioids is evidence-based. Those two points were, are patently false. Mm. We actually now know that vast majority of cases of pain can be treated actually non-pharmacologically. In other words, not with medication. I've had countless patients who, if they just applied um, like ice, heat, massage, even physical therapy, there's a lot of things that people can do, including yoga, that can relieve pain. And then it's a stepwise approach from that. Then you can also uh, take, you know, extra strength ibuprofen, extra strength acetaminophen or Tylenol, there's topical ointments, and then you go from there. So there's an algorithm that's really well established. Unfortunately, most doctors just aren't aware of this, this well established algorithm in terms of treating pain. And then yes, obviously, there's some patients in whom, you know, opioid pain, killers are clinically indicated. So I'm not saying here that opioids are the bad guy or they're the evil. They absolutely are not. They play a critical role in, in treating patients with pain. Many patients, unfortunately, were misprescribed opiates. So now for those people who do have opioid addiction, it's important to first recognize that they what they have now is an addiction. By the way, there are many, many people that are on chronic opioids who take it as prescribed. They do not misuse or, quote, abuse. I, I don't like using that word. They do not misuse the medications. They are doing as prescribed, as told, and they are getting benefit from the medication. But for the, those who develop addiction, again, it's really important for them to be connected to a substance use counselor, a social worker, somebody who has specialized training in substance use disorders. And then if that person needs to be admitted to the hospital, making sure that they're connected and getting medications like uh, a Suboxone or Buprenorphine or a Methadone while they're in the hospital. And then when they're ready to be discharged, they get connected to a provider, a prescriber in the community, along with uh, social support, um, behavioral therapies, you know, whatever is necessary to take care of that person long term. 
It would also seem like the lack of interoperability, you know, data interoperability or the lack of ubiquitous data also could exacerbate this condition or, or help prevent an impending problem. And what I mean by that is that if you've got one doctor over here who's prescribing certain medications and then another doctor over there who prescribed something similar, the patient might just do as prescribed and take all of them and then wind up with an issue that someone could have avoided had they had all of the information. That's a really great point. And one way of uh, addressing that or preventing that is something called the PDMP or a Prescriber Database Drug Monitoring Program. And so we're trying to encourage more prescribers, doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, to make sure they check the, the PMP. Uh, you know, that's it's not exactly a perfect system. Not all cities and states have this established and even when they do, not all prescribers are checking it. So there's some, you know, areas where we're trying to improve on that. So that's one aspect of it. But you're absolutely right. A lot of people with substance disorder, they'll do what's called doctor shopping. They'll go from one place to another to another. I suspect that I think Tom Petty had done this, but many, many people do, you know, in order to avoid uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms, they're going to do what they need to do. They're going to get opiates from whoever they need to or benzos. And if that's not available, they'll go to the street and get heroin. So, I mean, I get that. I really empathize with people that are struggling. So it's just important to make sure we have the infrastructure in place as a healthcare community, PMP is one, but really it's just having good communication with patients so they can trust the provider and prescriber and know that this person's not going to judge me uh, and they're going to give me the help that I need. You were on Rikers Island dealing with the addiction of prisoners. I can only, like, what was the first day on the job like? I can, I can only imagine, like, how did you feel walking in there? Well, what's interesting is that actually my job interview was at Rikers. So that was my first time at Rikers. And I don't know about most people listening, but for me personally, anything, the only thing I ever knew about Rikers was what I learned on Law and Order, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I, I love that show. I used to watch it religiously. Everything I heard, it, it all pales in comparison to the real thing. As you can imagine, Rikers as a jail complex is a, is a pretty intimidating place. The first thing you see are all these facilities, gray buildings, barbed wires, security, multiple security checkpoints. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a paramilitary institution. Think about the 50%, the over 50% of men and women who are incarcerated at Rikers who have some type of substance use issue. You know, bear in mind that the largest addiction facilities in the United States are correctional facilities. They're jails and prisons. And the largest mental health facilities are also jails and prisons. There is something deeply flawed in our society, law enforcement and uh, healthcare systems, if that's the reality. Is there causation or correlation or what happens first? What happens second? Do you have any insight? Truth be told, we simply don't have enough psychiatrists and counselors to be able to take care of people with mental illness. And as I mentioned already multiple times, we simply don't have uh, enough people that are trained in evidence-based addiction care. So there's lots of gaps there. And because we just don't have the treatment providers 
a lot of people that are getting involved in activities that are unfortunately criminal activities, they're, they're stealing, they're involved in prostitution, they're doing things that they normally never would do just to feed their addiction. So, and as a result right now, because remember heroin is a, it's a schedule one drug and it's illegal. So if you are using heroin, the response right now in our society is to get arrested and be put into jail or detention. And again, I will say New York City, at least, is uh, and, and Boston and many other communities nationwide are actually changing that. They're, they have di- drug diversion programs where, you know, something in Seattle called LEAD, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. So there's a lot, I mean, I, mean I'm, I have to give a lot of credit to certain communities of law enforcement that are really working together with public health departments to get people to care that they need so they're not thrown in jail, which, as you can probably imagine, is traumatizing in and of itself. So if you haven't been traumatized before going to jail, you sure as hell be once you you get there. If the largest addiction centers in the United States are in prisons, it would stand to reason that if you're in prison, maybe you finally get the care that you need. Sounds like a weird question. Well, the sad reality is that most jails and prisons do not uh, provide evidence-based treatment. Uh, So I happen to work at one of the few correctional facilities, Rikers, that does offer evidence-based treatment for people with opioid use disorder. So if you are going into Rikers and you're struggling with heroin, fentanyl, or some other opioid addiction, you will be offered medications such as methadone or buprenorphine, both for for taper, which isn't treatment, but long-term maintenance treatment. And you'll be met with a, a a substance use counselor. So you're going to get that type of treatment. Unfortunately, Rikers is one of very, very, very few correctional facilities that offers that type of evidence-based care. And again, if you have a disease, an illness, and that's the sole reason you're in that facility, you shouldn't be in a correctional facility. You should be out in the community getting the care that you need and deserve. Yeah, it sounds like we have to decide what kind of society we want to be. Exactly. 100%. Is there any last advice that you might have for, you know, say a provider organization? You had mentioned a number of evidence-based protocols which really need to be in place. If I'm in charge of an emergency room somewhere, is there anything beyond making sure that we do the three things that you talked about, you know, like make sure that we have the right people in place to recognize and to help patients who might be coming in with an underlying addiction that we didn't talk about? Using emergency departments as an example, there are some really good pilot programs and communities nationwide that are doing some really great work. There's something called Project Assert that's happening in Boston, I believe Boston Medical Center. There are lots of communities right now. I don't think people need to necessarily reinvent the wheel. I would encourage hospitals, ED, emergency departments, police departments, to look what's happening in other communities around the country and and reach out. I can tell you personally, I have reached out to multiple providers, prescribers, uh, policymakers in various states. In Massachusetts, an example, you know, from their governor, whether the governor was a Democrat or Republican, to their attorney general, right down to police department chiefs and city mayors, like say Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, they have all worked in this interdisciplinary manner, talking to one another, overcoming obstacles, and just really listening and uh, listening to what other 
states are doing, other cities, and just learning from their mistakes and from their successes. That's one. And then really, the second thing is, you know, the two main take-home messages I would want your listeners to remember is that addiction is a chronic medical disease relapsing and remitting disease of the brain. We expect relapse to happen. It is not a sign of moral weakness or failure. And the second point is that most people with addiction, once connected to the appropriate treatment and recovery services, get better. So I would ask yourself or whatever organization you're a part of, you know, what do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? Do I need to partner with our city's health department, our state's health department? Do I need to look online to say SAMHSA, ASAM, um, uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine? There's a, a CDC. There's a lot of great organizations at the local, state, and federal levels that really know what needs to be done. And they're working really hard to make sure that these interventions are being implemented. So contact or look at these uh, federal sites like SAMHSA, ASAM, and CDC to at least help guide you in the beginning. And I think that's pretty sound advice also for payers, for example, employers who might be concerned about addiction within their employee population as well, yeah. or, to, or to look around for a provider organization with an ED that has this, these capabilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I also want to make one point really clear, and that is that, you know, people of color are disproportionately affected by substance use disorder and incarceration. You know, you were asking about my time at when I was working at Rikers. So uh, it's a stark observation. And that is that people of color, usually a, a Latino background or a black Americans, they are disproportionately presented at uh, places like Rikers, Cook County in Chicago. So remember, black Americans make up 13% of the US population. They make up about 15% of drug users, but they make up over 50% of people who are incarcerated for their drug-related use. So there's something deeply flawed in our healthcare and criminal justice systems that this is happening and it's just not right. So I think we just all need to work together and recognize that and just help out our fellow brother and sister. You are asked frequently to speak at different events. If someone is interested in inviting you for a speaking engagement, where would you direct them for more information? As you can probably tell, I'm deeply passionate about this issue. I mean, as a doctor, I feel so privileged to be able to provide the care that I do. And I figure, what's the point of going through all these years of training if I can't share this information? So if people just go to lippyroy.com, that's L-I-P-I-R-O-Y.com. And then on that front page, they'll see a link to my speaker page and they'll see all the different topics that I discuss. Just go to my speaker page and you can reach out to me there. And then you or you could just directly email me at drdrlippynyc at yahoo.com. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Lippy. Thank you so much, Stacey, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.